Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Our text for this morning is uh, taken from Genesis chapter 7. It's in the midst of the narrative of Noah and the great flood. So Genesis 7, if you've got your Bibles, uh, by all means open them to that. If not, I'll read that for you. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind everything on the dry land in those nostrils, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. I've chosen this morning a very familiar text for us to 
uh, look at uh, the story of Noah and the ark he built to survive a flood. It's the stuff of children's songs. It's the story of a man building a huge ark in the middle of dry land in obedience to what God has told him. How crazy must he have appeared? Genesis 6 verse 3 suggests it might have taken him 120 years. 120 years of enduring mockery in the face of increasing wickedness till we read in chapter 6 verses 11 and 12 that the earth was filled with violence for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It's my hope this morning to look at some of the literary features of this text. They are very pronounced. It's a very carefully crafted text. I happen to think this is also a historical account, an accurate historical account. Now the literal and the literary tend not to be put together, not because there isn't evidence of both. There's ample evidence of the archae uh, in archeological findings of a, of a universal flood similarly of mythological accounts. But we tend not to see these two coming together and not to want to see the literary features of this text because deep within us, we rebel against the idea that God carefully ordains all of history. He acts within it. He fashions it. He lends it contours and a meaning. It has a purpose. And we're told one day he will also return to judge it. Now the broader context of this story, the reason for the flood, is the problem of sin, which we learn about back in Genesis verse three. It is sin that explains the growing debauchery of our own world, the degeneration of heart, mind, will, and character in the people around us. Our society values free choice above all values. We effectively say, echoing Genesis 3 verse 5, we have become as gods, determining good and evil for ourselves. It's our choice. Now we usually do this, determine good and evil, by determining that everything is good. With one obvious exception, you'll have noted, Christians are now publicly ridiculed, as is Christian teaching, which stems from God word, God's word. It is alone described as evil. There is no fear before our contemporaries' eyes, particularly those who are older than I. They have heard of sin and hell and judgment. They went to church when they were young, and yet they say, God isn't doing anything. They put up their rainbow flags and banners. It's a mockery of judgment. It is as if to echo the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Well, this story of Noah and the flood tells us one thing very clearly. God is patient and willing for people to repent, but he will not tolerate sin forever. In Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, the Lord Jesus Christ says this in reference to his time, which is our time. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into his ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So we need to be especially attentive this morning because we live in days of great wickedness, growing wickedness, when people call good evil and evil good and sin abounds in our midst. 
And the apostle Peter describes generations like ours in his second letter. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter comments, they deliberately overlooked the fact that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So with those words and those warnings in mind, let's look at this text, Genesis 7. This whole episode that I read to you here uh, is narrated in a literary form that some scholars call a chiasmus, a word related to the uh, Greek uh, letter uh, chi, which is written like an X. If you think about the pen stroke of an X, you'll understand it crosses in the middle. I think they've been overly influenced by Greek poetics here rather than taking uh, uh, specifically Hebrew poetics here because I think a more obvious description of the text here in literary terms, it's like a wave or a flood. Let's just look at the timeline description of the flood. It begins in chapter seven, verse four. It concludes outside of what I read in chapter eight, verse 12. We're told that Noah waits for the flood for seven days in seven verse four, and once again in, uh, in seven verse 10. In between, we have 40 days of flooding, seven verse 17a, and in the middle, we're told that the water prevailed for 150 days, and it receded for 150 days. And that's in chapter eight, verse three. And at the end, Noah waits 40 days for the flood to recede, chapter eight, verse six, and finally, at the end of the sequence, there's uh, seven days of waiting for the dry land, and it's mentioned twice in chapter 8, verse 10 and 12. So it goes 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7, 7. Exact parallelism, perfect symmetry, looks like the high tide. Now, this structure is obviously fitting to the telling of the rising and falling of waters in a flood story. The literary structure of the narrative conveys to the attentive reader God's exact and careful orchestration of the events. God's judgment, judgment is not a wild fit of anger. It's a systematic, planned destruction of the world entirely in accordance with his power and with his purposes. It was announced 120 years earlier. God was waiting for sin to reach its full measure and then he uses the world of nature to fulfill his purposes. And the effect is that what he created to be separate and distinct and holds separate through his providential working is now being uncreated through the incursion of chaos and apparent anarchy. Now we see this in particular in verse 11 here. There isn't just one, but two sources for the flood waters. There is a steady, relentless downpour for 40 days and 40 nights. That's the, that's the point always emphasized in our children's songs. But we note that there is also a vast tidal wave that stems from the eruption of waters from the ocean deep. The deep is opened up. Now there's no doubt in my mind that the water coming from above and coming down from below is, in, is bringing to the reader's mind what has happened in Genesis 1 verses 6 and 7 where there are waters below and above and there's an expanse made between them and now God is unmaking and bringing back together what he has previously differentiated and separated and called good. So the flood uncreates 
and returns things back to the time when there were only waters and no earth. What had been separated is being brought back together again. God is not just the creator, he is the destroyer. What was created good has become polluted and, not, and made not good by man, and so what God is, has done is being undone. Now that's the general structure of the passage, the timeline. Let's look at one other literary feature, the fourfold emphasis on the careful obedience of Noah. Uh, chapter six, verse 22, I almost began with this, uh, mentions that in response to God's specific requests, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. The same words are used in seven verse five. Noah did all that God, the Lord had commanded him. Verse uh, seven verse nine, two and two male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Finally, verse 16, those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. Now this emphasis on obedience is striking. It jumps out of the text. It's potentially problematic though, because we might conclude that the reason that Noah is called righteous back in verse one is because he was obedient. To one, in one sense, it's true. He was obedient. He built the ark which he was told to build, and he did, it, he did everything that he was commanded. But without getting into details, it's not because of his obedience that God has declared him to be righteous. It doesn't work in, term, in, the, in the Hebrew here. It does not actually hold this definition. Uh, it's not because he did good works that Noah has been declared righteous. It has a prospective sense, this word righteous here. Noah has not been declared righteous because of his obedience, but simply because of the purposes of God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God has chosen Noah as the suitable representative of the human race, the one man by whom the entire human race might be preserved. And why has God chosen him? It's because Noah trusted in him. In words echoing the description of Adam and of Enoch, in verse nine it tells us that Noah walked with God. It was because of Noah's faith in the Lord's plan of salvation. He was not saved by his obedience. He didn't seek his own way. He didn't seek a third way. He sought the Lord's way and he trusted in God. Now this is abundantly clear when we choose another text, which any literary reading must do because the Bible is a unity. It's presented as one book. It needs to be read backwards and forward. Hebrews 11 verse seven tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we see, as I said, God will not tolerate sin forever. The take-home lesson here, however, is that the Lord destroys the wicked and their world, but saves a remnant through the obedience of one man. Now, I've blown this because I was gonna give you the title of the sermon. It wasn't actually published in advance, so I'm not missing the point here. He saved through the obedience of one man. Who was that one man? For me, it was not Noah. The obedience of the one man was not Noah. Noah was saved by faith. 
not by the obedience of one man. It is the Lord himself that has saved Noah. Look at verse 16. I want you to notice a significant little detail. After we read that every creature went into the ark, as God had commanded him, him being Noah, we read these words, and the Lord shut him in. This designation, the Lord, jumps out in the narrative. It's the covenant name of God, the promise-keeping God, the one who spoke to the serpent back in Genesis 3.15, telling him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise uh, his head. And it was he who shut Noah in. And as soon as he does this, the flood comes. It's clearly judgment upon sin. God is demonstrating that he won't tolerate it any longer. He's going to blot it out entirely. But it is the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. He will shut the door on it. And it is the Lord who shuts Noah in. The Lord who's the outside protector of the ark and its vulnerable passengers. After this verse, all the action takes place outside the ark. One commentator notes that there's much here that is a reminiscent, reminiscent of Genesis verse three. Life inside the ark parallels life inside the Garden of Eden. Life outside the ark parallels life outside the garden. Inside there's salvation, outside there is not. Inside there's immunity from disaster, outside there is inevitable death. The ark is spared, the earth is doomed. And the Lord of life himself is for a time outside the ark. In the midst of the boiling waters where sin is punished and death abounds. And we should note also that right in the middle of the narrative, at the very pinnacle of the water's triumph, chapter eight, verse one, we hear something extraordinary. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now this is an echo of Genesis 1 verse 2 where we're told that darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. More importantly though, it's an anticipation of the narrative of the cross. The take home lesson this morning is that the Lord destroys the wicked and their world but he will save a remnant through the obedience of one man. Now that one man is not Noah, it's God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan for salvation was to destroy sin and death by sending his only begotten son to take the punishment that the entire human race and each one of us deserved at the cross. He did so willingly, obediently, he substituted himself in our place as the Lamb of God, the clean animal who takes away the sins of the world. This passage in which the flood reaches its pinnacle, destroying all sin, is the precise, the precise time that God remembers Noah. The Lord remembered Noah, the man of faith, and it anticipates one final passage in Scripture, in the New Testament, where at the sixth hour, noonday, where the sun is at its height, when the and yet the sky grew pitch black for three hours as the wrath of God was visited upon his own dear son. He hung at the cross in our place. 
and his son experienced the dereliction, the abandonment that we deserved, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And having put those of us who have faith in him inside the ark, the new creation, the new Garden of Eden alongside the world's creature, he remained outside to shut the door. Philippians 2 puts it this way, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how should we respond? There are only two ways. Luke 23, verse 39 to 43 tells us how two people responded to Christ and his crucifixion. These were the two thieves that stood alongside him, stood alongside him, hung alongside him. We're told that there were two criminals. How did they respond? I'll read. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We can see that the one mocked at him rejecting that this was in fact a judgment upon him, one who deserved judgment and deserved judgment upon the world and that there were eternal consequences to that rejection. The other recognized that he deserved eternal punishment for his sin, but that Jesus was bearing it unjustly for him. And he recognized the offer of salvation, the power of God, even in Jesus' abjects, abject weakness. He faithfully asked to be brought into the ark of salvation, restored to the Garden of Eden. And Jesus' words of grace were these, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus shut the door on the outside. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest who was also the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you that at the cross you were cut off from God the Father, that you bore the sins of the whole world on your shoulders, that you bore the wrath of God, the punishment of sin, the floodwaters rising above, rising above us, that we might be put into that ark of salvation, that we might know what it is to be your people. Father, as we leave this place, we pray that you would encourage us in the knowledge that you are with us and will be with us until the end of the age. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life. Amen.